In your bulletin today, you'll notice that there's a text of Scripture printed out for you, and we're going to look at that as the basis for understanding the topic that we'll look at this morning, which is baptism. This is really the third in an ongoing series of messages that we're going to provide for you, really as cornerstone messages, as as foundational messages to help you understand what we believe and teach here at our church. And so, baptism is a very important subject. In fact, it's uh, one that I think warrants the foundational message because uh, it's one of only two ordinances that the Lord left us, the other one being communion. As you know, we have studied that at length in recent months. But the reason that I want to go back into uh, the text of Scripture and and look at baptism by looking at both John and Matthew uh, is because they provide the most detailed description of Jesus' baptism. And both John and Matthew would have been eyewitnesses as disciples of Jesus. The other two accounts in Mark and Luke would have been relayed to those men by Peter and Paul, respectively. It doesn't make them any less inspired, but I think it's interesting to look at the the way that both John and Matthew describe the events surrounding Jesus' baptism. Because if we're going to understand our baptism, we have to understand Jesus' baptism. And so if you have your bulletin, go ahead and uh, take a look at this text. And what I'm going to do is is read this to you because uh, we'll combine those two accounts in the Gospels and hopefully through this have a clearer understanding of, uh, of what's being taught here. So please follow along as I read. Beginning in John chapter 1 verses uh, 29 and following. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Then in the Matthew account we get this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Uh, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Back to the account in John, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's Word. This morning, I want to show you three direct implications from this text. 
specifically the fact that baptism is a sign of communion with Christ in his perfect fulfillment of three divine promises, namely that of prophecy, righteousness, and fellowship. Those are our three points this morning. So, in your bulletin, you'll see three, prophecy, righteousness, and fellowship. Let's first look back at the text and make sure we understand what's being written here in the context. At the beginning, we see the next day, and that, of course, is going to make us ask the question, well, what happened the day before? And the answer is that, in the context, the day before, uh, John the Baptist had been in the midst of an altercation with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Levites and the religious leaders that had been sent from Jerusalem to go and take a look at what he was doing at the Jordan. Now, John the Baptist was not somebody who cared terribly about what people thought about him. He certainly wasn't intimidated by the religious elite. He was a guy who lived out in the wilderness and, as you know, dressed in camel's hair and ate locusts and honey. Jesus himself says he is the greatest man who ever lived. He is not some reed blown around in the wind, worried about what people are going to say when he preaches the truth. And so these people come out, and John's response to them as he sees them from afar is he says to them, you brood of vipers, you sons of snakes, who told you about the judgment that was to come? What are you doing coming out here? You see, he understood that these religious leaders were coming out to essentially pretend to get baptized by John, that they were really just planted in there. They were spies. They were trying to figure out what John was doing. And he says to them, you're not welcome here. Who told you about the judgment to come? Why are you coming out here to repent, coming out here to receive this baptism? You see, John the Baptist would not have been put outside the church as part of the welcoming committee. Uh, John was not engaged in seeker-sensitive ministry. John saw that this was nothing but a hypocritical show. And it's important because the baptism that he was engaged in out there was a baptism for the religious Jewish people. It was an acknowledgement that their religion couldn't rescue them. When somebody went out to get baptized by John as a Jew, they were saying Judaism was not sufficient to save them. In the exchange with the religious leaders, he says, don't you go around thinking that somehow you're special because you're Jewish, that somehow you're special because you're a son of Abraham. He says, God could make sons of Abraham out of these stones. What matters is that you're a Jew spiritually. What matters is that you are a son of Israel spiritually. And so the people that were coming out to get baptized were already Jews by birth, but what they were demonstrating was that that religious system couldn't save them. And so they had to repent of it. In fact, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for going out on their evangelistic missions and converting people from paganism to Judaism. He says, when you do that, you make them twice a son of hell as they were before. So in this case, you would have had to get converted to Judaism, which usually involved a baptism, but then you would have had to repent of your Judaism and get baptized yet again to say that it wasn't enough to actually save you. And John the Baptist understood that, and that's why he confronts these religious leaders when they come out. He says, you're not here to acknowledge that your religious system can't save. You're here to spy out what I am doing and take word back so that I can be punished by it. Well, that's the context. 
So this is the next day after that altercation. We see here that he saw Jesus now coming towards him, and his response is very different. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, or literally you can say taking up the sin, singular, of the world. Uh, This is a fulfillment of prophecy. He says this is the one who they said would come, who would be able to take up, to put on himself the sin of the world. All of the sin that has caused the world to be cursed, he is the one who will reverse it. He is the one who will break it. He is the one who will pay the penalty for it. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. You see, John the Baptist understood that this one would come after him who was greater than him, who was better than him. And it says that this was because he was before me, before me eternally, before me, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. There's something very objective happening here. He isn't merely saying that I've identified the one who is going to take up the sins of the world, and it's just merely a way for him to be revealed to you. No, he says that when when Jesus comes out here, he is doing something that is vitally important because he is revealing himself as the Son of God. He is identified as being beyond John the Baptist in his rank. He is eternal in the sense that before John the Baptist was, I am, he could say. But it goes even further than that. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Why did John the Baptist begin his ministry? It was so that he could bring a water baptism to repentant Jews in order that eventually through that fulfillment of prophecy, the Lord would reveal the Messiah. He says, I'm out here baptizing in the wilderness in the Jordan as a living picture so that through this, God in his providence will reveal to Israel the promised one who would reveal to Israel the Messiah. That's why John the Baptist had a ministry. And so he says, now he's come. This one that I had been told would come and arrive when I was doing my ministry is finally here. Now Matthew, who wrote his gospel primarily to the Jewish people, picks up the story and provides a little bit of bonus material. Look at the next part. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, kind of back to where we were, to be baptized by him. And and John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? Now pause there for a moment. It's very interesting, very important. Uh, Like with most things that that, that can be a little bit hard to understand, and I know baptism is one of them. Um, I know that you all have a certain understanding of baptism as you arrived here today. Some some of you grew up in, in Baptist churches. And in that Baptist church, baptism was a very important part of everyday life. Some of you grew up in Presbyterian churches. Baptism looked a little bit different. It was uh, done to infants. Some of you may have been associated with uh, certain groups that didn't even believe that that baptism was necessary, like the Salvation Army. Or maybe you you were part of a group that's really just a cult, but the, the Church of Christ that says you have to be baptized in order to be saved. 
So you're coming from all different backgrounds, and, and maybe you're visiting today, and you're not even a Christian, and you're wondering, wow, I picked a weird Sunday to visit. Uh, or maybe you grew up in a church that honestly, and it's quite common here in North County, it's so nominal and so shallow that no one's ever really even explained it to you. So no matter where you come from, let, let's all focus in on this today because it's really important to understand it. it it's one of the central truths that is revealed all throughout the Old Testament in various typology and then made real and visible and evident in the New. And so when Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized and, and John's response is, I should be baptized by you, he does not mean, I should have you dip me in this Jordan River, not me dip you in this Jordan River. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I need your kind of baptism. You don't need my kind of baptism. My kind of baptism is just a water baptism. My kind of baptism is an old covenant symbol of what is to come. But you, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, you're going to bring your own baptism, and that is going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist says to Jesus, I need your baptism. It would have been pointless for Jesus to baptize John the Baptist in the Jordan River because John the Baptist didn't need that baptism. John the Baptist needed Jesus' baptism, and so do all of us. When Jesus came, he came to reveal that his baptism would not be with water, but it would be with the Holy Spirit. And so, John the Baptist says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But astonishingly, the reaction is this. Jesus answered, let it be so now. If I were to translate this for you directly, it would go like this. But Jesus answered him, permit presently. Two very important distinctions. Permit it. Allow it. Do it. Jesus would say to John the Baptist, you're right, I don't need your baptism. You're right, I, I don't need this. This isn't for me, but permit it, and permit it now, at this time. It's not going to be something that carries on because Jesus was the last person to be baptized in the Jordan River. Jesus didn't need the baptism, and no one else did after Jesus had accomplished it. Very soon after this, John the Baptist would be killed, he'd be off the scene, and baptisms at the Jordan River would cease. But Jesus says, make sure you allow it to happen and do it presently. Do it at this time, right now, for this reason, because in the whole arc of redemptive history, in the whole plan of God, in everything that was symbolized in the Old Testament and is going to be made visible in the new, this has to happen. And he says something very specific to John the Baptist. He says to him, do it now, permit it presently, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says, John, this is important for you and I together to do this. Because as part of his active obedience... As part of the act of righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you at salvation, he had to live out his life perfectly and accomplish all righteousness. 
And one of the ways for him to accomplish all righteousness was to go through this rite of baptism because it was expected of the true Israelites, the true people of God. When John the Baptist was doing his baptizing, it was drawing a line between those who were repenting of their religion and those who were trusting it to save them. And so what Jesus was doing is he was aligning himself with all of those who had been called to repent from a religious system that could never save you and into something that equates to the promises of God. Now, this is incredibly important. And I know it's probably not something that uh, you've maybe even heard before. This is relatively new, so bear with me because I think we can justify this very clearly by looking at the scriptural text. He says here that as a result of that, as a result of the two of them fulfilling the righteous expectations of God, at that moment, John then consented. Why did John the Baptist consent? Because this was, in effect, maybe not literally the last baptism in the Jordan River, but it was the only one that really mattered. It was the one that revealed the Messiah. John consented to this because it was the last baptism under the Old Covenant, just like Jesus would perform the last Passover under the Old Covenant when He met with His disciples around the table, just like Jesus would perform the last sacrifice of the Old Covenant when He laid down His life on the cross. It's the beginning of the end of the Old Covenant. The garment that's worn out, it is being discarded bit by bit throughout Jesus' ministry as He succeeds in every place that Adam failed, as he becomes the last and the greatest, the only one to fulfill every act of righteousness along the way. And so John consents to this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending, and Luke adds, in bodily form like a dove, and coming to rest on him. He looks up, and, and, and the sky is ripped open, and the Holy Spirit takes on the form of a dove and comes down. Now, notice this. Number one, He took on the form of a dove. This helps us to understand that it was a visible, physical form. He didn't just come down as a dove, came down for whatever purposes in the form of a dove. But don't go too far with that. Just stop there because if you go too far with it, then you think the Holy Spirit's a dove. And before long, you got doves on everything. Enough with the doves. The Holy Spirit's not a dove. You can go home this afternoon and I give you permission to throw out all your Christian clutter that has doves on it. You're never going to see a symbol of a dove anywhere at this church. Why? Because it was only at that moment as a sign. Now, there was definitely some fulfillment of what the Old Testament looked forward to. Remember, even over the waters at creation, the Holy Spirit was hovering, and, and the Jewish Targums say, like a dove. We know that the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary at the divine, miraculous virgin conception as a dove. But here, this dove comes down and rests upon Jesus. And don't get caught up on the dove part. Get caught up on the resting part. The resting part means that this dove came, the Holy Spirit came, and rested upon Him permanently. It anointed Him. 
In the Old Covenant, a king like David was anointed with oil. It was a symbol of God's Spirit on him. That's why in his confession psalm, Psalm 51, he says, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's not a fear that he would lose his salvation or something. It was a fear that that anointing would be taken away. Here the anointing comes, and on Jesus it stays. And the Father reveals that he has been anointed, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. And so it rests on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is an indication that this Son, equal to the Father, is the one who would come and would do everything in accordance with the Father's will. That He would be absolutely pleased with Him. Everything would be done perfectly in and by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. In and by through His own natural divinity. According to the Father's will, this Messiah would come to perform and perfect all righteousness. And so, back to John. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What type of baptism does this one come with? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus came with a supernatural baptism. This is why Jesus said to the disciples at the end of his ministry, it is better that I go, because if I go, I will send the Spirit then, and the Spirit will be in you. The most important baptism is the Holy Spirit baptism. The water baptism that we perform is merely a Looking back to that, it's saying this is what has really happened in the life of the person, and the water baptism is a symbol, a reminder of the work that Jesus Christ has done. Now, I think it's critically important that we look at these implications for us, and so, as I said earlier, it's a sign of communion with Christ in His perfect fulfillment of these three divine promises. Let's look at them, prophecy, righteousness, and fellowship. Number one, prophecy prophecy. I mean, John begins his whole ministry saying that, you know, he's a voice crying in the wilderness. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah said, one would come who would prophesy, who would would call out in the wilderness saying that, that the Lord is coming, and this is what John did. It was the last old covenant prophetic ministry. John the Baptist was the last of the old covenant prophets. He paved the way for Messiah. He revealed him to Israel. This was their promised Redeemer. It was the promise of the healing for those who would repent and a warning for those who refused. As he said with those religious leaders who came out, who made you aware of this judgment that was to come? Who warned you? He said the judgment that was going to come was actually to come upon the religious leaders in Israel. You realize that when Jesus preached, he preached his most violent sermons against the religious leaders. He reserved his harshest language for religious leaders. 
for those who were enslaving the people under a system that could promise them no salvation. But when Jesus encountered an individual, it was always with gentleness and compassion. It was always with love. It was always with tenderness. He always responded to them by saying that it's their faith that had saved them. He doesn't impose upon them any kind of works. In fact, even those who rejected him, he still treated with love and compassion. When the rich young ruler rejected Christ, believing that somehow through his own merit and through his own fulfillment of the law that he would be made right with God, it says that Jesus was saddened by his rejection. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I would invite you to listen carefully to what Jesus says when he encounters people with questions and to hear that invitation today, that invitation to believe, that invitation to put your faith in him, to trust him, to rest, to rest from a life of sin and trying to satisfy yourself and to rest from a life of self-righteousness by trying to earn his favor. By simply coming and, and receiving the promised forgiveness and finding your joy in him and your rest in him. A true gospel when preached is a gospel that will result in great peace to your soul and rest. He says to me, come you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Cast your burdens on him. Whatever he puts on you in terms of grateful obedience, it is light and it is a joy to carry. But that was the message both from John the Baptist and from Jesus himself, and it really applies to all who are true Israel, because true Israel came out to repent. They are the ones who believed, repented, they obeyed, they gave thanks. Now, this was signified even earlier on in the Old Covenant. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Naaman. Naaman was the military leader of the Syrian army. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile. And at one point during one of his campaigns, his people had taken captive a little Jewish girl. And we have no idea what happened to this little girl's family, but typically when the Syrians came in and they raided your village, it wasn't very good. And when little girls got taken captive and put into slavery, their lives certainly didn't get any better. But this little girl was serving in the house of this Syrian general named Naaman. And because he was suffering from leprosy, she said to him, you know, there is a prophet in my country of Israel who might be able to help you. And really, out of kindness to him, she reveals this hope. And Naaman goes out and he meets with Elisha. And you all know the story of how that unfolds. And what he ends up having to do is go down to the Jordan River and to dip seven times. And when he comes out, he's clean. And that dipping in the Jordan, that cleansing, that washing is the symbol that carries over into the Old Covenant baptism rituals. In fact, when you became a convert from paganism to Judaism, one of the things you had to do was get baptized. You were circumcised, you were baptized, and then you had to offer a sacrifice for your sin. And it symbolized the washing, it symbolized the, the cleansing. And what you see in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15 with Naaman is that he responds by saying, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You see, it was an awareness. He was coming to the truth. This was evangelistic. 
This was him saying, I now believe in Yahweh. He is now my, my God. And so that was always the case for anyone. It doesn't matter if you were born a Jew or not. It mattered whether or not you really understood what God has provided for you. Well, that's prophecy. Uh, what about righteousness? In his death on the cross, Jesus died our death for us, and in his life, he lived our act of righteousness for us in every respect, including the perfect righteousness that would have included the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. Now, this is another area where theologians can go off track quite easily. There are two errors that we need to avoid. Number one is the error that Jesus had to go out to John to repent of some of his own sin. We know that's absolutely untrue. There was no sin in Christ. He did not go out to John for forgiveness of his own sin. But we can also be equally in error if we think that, John, uh, that Jesus went out there to John just to sort of reveal himself, to kick off his ministry, to kind of go through the motions, to identify just with the people. No, he did something very real and particular and important and necessary. We saw that earlier when in John's description. He says, I know who this person was and why he had come and that he should have baptized me. And so because he consented and because the two of them agreed to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness, there was something very real that was going on there. The... Theologian Gerhardus Voss, in his book, Biblical Theology, um, this is not a paid endorsement, but if you're looking to wade through something that is absolutely uh, nourishing to your soul, I highly recommend it. But in his Biblical Theology, he really helped me, I think, to understand this. And let me just read a quote because I think it helps to clarify what was going on here. He says this, with regard to repentance, if Jesus bore sin vicariously, that means for somebody else, and received forgiveness vicariously, then there can be no objection on principle to saying that he repented for the people vicariously. You see, when Christ went out to receive this baptism from John, he was fulfilling what everyone should have been doing just like he had been doing for every other aspect of his life up until that point and everything after that point. The baptism that John offered was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus went out to receive it, not because Jesus needed it for himself, but to fulfill it for all of those whom the Father had ordained and elected before the foundation of the world who would put their faith in Christ so that his particular specific death for them would include a righteousness that was imputed. And that righteousness was so comprehensive and complete that it even included the baptism of John. And that is why the baptism of John is no longer necessary. That, brothers and sisters, is why in a church, when a baptism is performed, it is not the baptism of John the Baptist. Don't have in your mind the baptism of John the Baptist when you see a person get baptized. Have in your mind the baptism of Jesus Christ, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is the one you need to have in your mind when you see somebody get baptized. The last person that ever needed to get baptized by John the Baptist was Jesus. 
And he did that for us. Therefore, very practically, our hope is in the act of obedience and the finished work of Christ. Our testimony is about his righteousness and his works, not ours. That's why when a person gives their testimony at baptism, it's not an autobiography of this is what I was like before I got saved, and now this is what I'm like after I got saved, and, and therefore, you know, I'm getting baptized to, to prove it. That, that's, that's, that's not what baptism is. Baptism really isn't about you. It's not about your personal testimony of how you've changed. That's, that's an element of your conversion, but it's not the essence of your testimony. A testimony, brothers and sisters, is a testifying to the finished work of Christ. When the believer is baptized, they are saying to their fellow believers, I believe that Christ came and did this for me, and I have received that from Him. And yes, now I am a new creation, praise God. But that's not the basis of my assurance. In fact, a baptismal testimony is not an autobiography aimed at describing our new behavior as evidence of conversion, but rather our trust in Christ as assurance of our conversion. This is why Peter says what he does in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 of his epistle. Once again, he, he references baptism, and so it might be helpful for us to see this in case you're wondering how it relates. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, he says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Corresponds to what? What's the antecedent of this? The antecedent of this is Noah in the ark. He says, baptism or being immersed into something is what saves you. Being inside the ark is what saved you from the wrath of God during the time of Noah. Likewise, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you, but not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. <laughs> Because he rules and he reigns. Because King Jesus reigns. That his kingdom has been inaugurated. And so when you are baptized, you are saying, I am in him. And all of the promises that he brought are now fulfilled and are yes and amen. And I receive them. It is not the washing. You see, baptism was sometimes by immersion. Some other people use a different mode. The idea here is the cleansing part of it. It doesn't wash away anything now, the water. What really washes away and cleanses you is Christ. So it's all righteousness. And thirdly, it's ultimate fellowship. Therefore, this symbol of baptism is that we are washed of our sin. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and all of that because you are recipients of the Spirit because of the baptism of Jesus. You see, this is why later on in Acts chapter 19, remember when Paul is passing through the Gentile territories and he comes across these believers who have put their faith in John's baptism and he says to them, have you heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of Jesus? And they say, no, we've never heard of that. We've only been baptized by John the Baptist. We are reformed Jews. We are, we are coming out of the Jewish system that 
we know cannot really save us with all of its corruption, and we are putting our faith in Messiah, and, and we believe what John the Baptist was doing, but we haven't heard about this other baptism, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. You see, speaking in tongues was an indication that these Gentiles had really become part of true Israel and the covenant community of God. In fact, when the Spirit of God is poured out upon people, there are often symbols of this when it comes to speaking in tongues. This is what happened back in um, the old covenant as well, Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, when the 70 elders, the Spirit came down upon them and they all began speaking in tongues. You don't need to speak in tongues to be saved. You don't need to speak in tongues to be uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, we're going to do a special Sunday school next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. We're going to specifically look at the gift of tongues and have that explained uh, to you in case maybe you grew up in a church or in a context where it's been taught to you in error. But the reality is that the Holy Spirit manifested Himself and became visible or at least audible in the sense of tongues. The point was that the Holy Spirit and salvation had come to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. The true Israel of God are all those who put their faith in Christ. And so the emphasis then is on the corporate nature of our being baptized into the fellowship. This is why Ephesians 4 is so important. I love the way that the Apostle Paul puts it, and and you can just listen as I read this, but Ephesians chapter 4, the first few verses go like this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, what baptism showed was a unity, a unity among Gentiles who had come to faith, a unity among Jews who had come to faith in Christ, a unity today across all normally dividing areas like race or gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic class or age or anything else, there is nothing that binds us together into one unified church that is more beautifully and symbolically represented than in baptism. So I would ask you to correct your thinking and don't place an emphasis so much on the dove, don't place an emphasis so much on the location of your baptism somehow being in proximity to the Jordan River. There's nothing special about being baptized in the Jordan River. In fact, the Jordan River represents the old baptism, the old covenant baptism, the useless baptism that has now been discarded. The only baptism that matters is the baptism of the Holy Spirit when a person is converted and puts their faith in Christ. That's why the the real baptism that matters is the baptism that is visible within the corporate church as gathered. Now, if your church building happens to be built over top of the Jordan River and you can go into the basement and baptize there, great. But this is for the local church. You don't do baptisms at camp. 
You don't do baptisms as part of your religious vacation. Baptism is meant to be a sign to the rest of the body of Christ that your testimony is that you have believed in the gospel and that you have been washed once and for all. You don't need to go back to the old rituals, the old washings. We learned that in Hebrews chapter 9. Just listen again as I read. It's so clear. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The time of reformation came when Christ came to put an end to the old covenant baptisms, to put an end to the old covenant Passover, to put an end to the old covenant sacrifices, to put an end to the old covenant temple. It doesn't matter. We're not concerned about geography anymore. It doesn't matter. He's come to fulfill it. Don't worry about trying to get out there and find a red heifer. Enough. He's fulfilled all of that. What matters is that the ultimate has come, which is why the author of the Hebrews says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Amen. The eternal redemption is what's celebrated in communion. Therefore, this act of baptism brings to completion in Christ those three promises. Our baptism publicly identifies us with believing what God has revealed about His Son, trusting in the righteous life that He lived, and committing to the fellowship of His body, the church. That's why baptism here at our church is a celebration for the church in a time where those who have clearly been converted and filled with the Spirit understand the nature of the gospel, are able to encourage the rest of us with their testimony of what Christ has done. And we're able to watch and see the fruit in their lives of what the Spirit has done and continues to do. May that be our understanding of baptism, and may that be what anchors us to this ordinance and be thankful for it as the gift that it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for this truth. And I ask that we would be all the more committed to the ordinance of baptism, that it would be that outward sign of the inward change that happened when you made us a new creature upon demonstrating the faith in Christ that you gave us as a gift, not because of our own free will, but because you have enslaved our will to righteousness 
Father, that through understanding prophecy, we would increase in knowledge, that through understanding righteousness, we would assent to what Christ has done for us, and that through the fellowship, uh, we would trust that you have done all the work that needs to be done, and that we can now rest, and that we can receive from you all of those wonderful gifts for which we should be so thankful. In your name we pray. Amen.